All right, Elizabeth. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Elizabeth. I'm an alcoholic. And we are going to start today with um, <clears throat> Roland's story. We're going to just take a peek. We did step one last week. So we're going to look as we transition into step two at Roland's story on page 26. So if you're following along, if not, we also put some notes of the pages that we bounce around to in the link, underneath the link where we have the recording, we have the page numbers. We'll do that again this week. So don't feel like you, um, you know, have to get that in case you miss something. All right, page 26, Roland. So, um, you know, we were talking last night, last night, last week about self-knowledge won't, won't fix it. My great desire won't keep me sober. Um, my knowledge of myself. And this is a great example of that. You know, Roland met with Dr. Young and who, you know, everybody, if most people know who that is, this great physician. And um, he had learned the workings of his mind. And in the middle of the first paragraph, towards the end, it says, above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. So he learned from the best how the mind worked, the ins and outs of his particular situation. And nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. Self-knowledge, the mind knowledge doesn't keep us sober. Next paragraph, he had a sincere desire. So he returned to his doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. Wishing, desiring doesn't keep us sober. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? And we looked at Jim and Fred last week. And this was Roland. Then he asked, point blank, this is one of the, the top specialists of the time, right? Is there, please tell me the whole truth. Tell me what's going on. And in the doctor's opinion, doctor's judgment was utterly, you're utterly hopeless. You're hopeless. There's nothing we can do here for you. So we flip over to page 27. And we, we learn in the next paragraph that Roland does get sober and stay sober. And he, he, can, he can do this provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. And we're gonna talk now about some of the places in the book where it talks about attitude. What kind of attitude do I need to have? Because self-knowledge doesn't work. My desire an attitude of eagerness doesn't work. So what kind of attitude does work? Um, the doctor tells me as the mind of the chronic alcoholic, and then he tells him what the solution is, okay? It's the, he coins it the vital spiritual experience. And that's midway down the page. Yes, replied the doctor. There is an exception. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics had what are called vital 
spiritual experiences. And for me, the way it was explained vital, you know, I, the, the, my mentor that took me through the steps and when we got to that word, he just put his fingers on the, his wrist, my vital signs. Like it is vital for an alcoholic to have this spiritual experience or an overeater or a fill in the blank, right? Overthinker. <laughs> um, we talked last week a lot about the thinking mind. To me, these occurrences are phenomenon. They appear to be in the, na in, in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That's one area of the book that promises. We also have another promise. Kate, why don't you bring us there to um, the next piece before we look at the spiritual experience and dig into that. The great fact, is that yeah. what you're thinking? Yeah, so let's do on, that. On, on page 25, it's, it says the great fact is just this and nothing less. Actually, I'm gonna start above because these are some amazing promises of what happens um we're promised this when we are utterly hopeless we have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed the great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences asterisk which have revolutionized our whole attitude and toward life toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives or lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He is commenced to accomplish these things, those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. So I love the word fact. A fact is unimpeachable. It's true no matter what. Is this the, you know, this is the great fact of my life today. It's the great fact. It's the central fact is that I am living in a dimension, the spiritual dimension of life. I was completely hopeless. And I, and this is not talking about I'm rocketed into a fourth dimension of my thinking. I'm able to suddenly think well and always think right. This is saying that I am living in a completely different place than I've ever lived in before. And, and the book is gonna tell us as we go through the rest of the steps, how do I access this experience that I'm promised that I can have as a result of step one and hitting bottom that step two is introducing me to? How can I have this in my life today? And this is gonna become my practice. So it's not just gonna be the reference point of what happens after I, I stopped getting drunk. This is gonna be a place that I get to live in, a dimension of life. And again, we have this word attitude, which is gonna be one of our themes for today. Our, our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and toward God's universe has been revolutionized. Um, Joe and Charlie talk about how 
the writers of the big book love to just use uh, use synonyms and that Bill just really, really loved using synonyms for the same words. And they talk about how revolutionized is just a word for change. But I love the word revolutionized because it's like the word transformation. Something, it's not just a change. It's, it's been a wholesale 180 degrees in a different, in a different direction. And, um, and then this promise, this higher power has accomplished accomplished what we could never have done by ourselves, which for me, I, I think of it in the we form, because I know that as a, as a collective fellowship, right, we endure, we triumph, we are sustained by things that we individually could never do. And then that serves again as a reference point for in my own life, I have a personal and individual higher power that does things for me on a moment to moment basis that I could not experience before alone without the we of the program, but without the God that was, that made accessible to me in the step. Elizabeth. Thanks, Kate. Let's, that, so you, you bring up the, a good point, you know, that, um, this is the beginning of a process that's going to lead us to the 12th step, right? The, that the promise, the result of what we're doing is we're going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps and be able to practice these principles in all our affairs and to pass them on to those we're going to try to keep trying to pass it on. That's what we're doing here. Freely give what we've been given. Um, now, how do we get there? We're going to look at the, uh, the difference between uh, faith and reason you know we could use the wheelbarrow story with the wheelbarrow story of the guy I'm, i don't know if you've ever heard it but it's one of my favorite stories that just depicts the difference like to ask myself what it, it, it keeps me from fooling myself you know this guy's at niagara falls he's got a tight rope across niagara falls and he's going to push a wheelbarrow across this tightrope and the crowd ensues and they're all looking on and they're watching and this one lady comes up to the guy and he's like oh my god I have so I have so much faith you are going to do so great I know you're going to get to the other side I can feel it I just know it's going to happen and he looked at her dead in the eyes and said get in that is right there am I getting in the wheelbarrow or am I just Talking <laughs> now, some people might be dismayed by I don't know what your story is with God or your experience with higher power, but we're going to look at the spiritual experience. Um, this part of the book was actually added after the first printing, right? I think it was the first printing because people thought, Oh my god, I have to have this awakening that I'm suddenly all my ideas and attitudes and everything's changed right here and right now. And, and they were like, no, 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 wait. And, and so they added the spiritual experience on 567, 567, I believe at the fourth edition. Um, and they described the difference between spiritual experience and spiritual awakening. And that's the difference of time, right? Spiritual awakening, although they happen to many people, they result in a change of attitude, something that you were completely, and I've had these before, something that I was just doing um, that I just 
wasn't even aware that I was doing. And then awareness came and I stopped doing it. And that was when I did my first fourth step. Um, and I didn't even know that I was doing this my whole life. But as soon as I saw it, it was like, well, why would I do that? It doesn't even make sense to do that. And that just went away. I, just, I don't do that anymore. Um, and then there are what a little bit down in the spiritual experience, they refer to William James and the educational variety of spiritual experiences. And those happen over time. So I might not be aware of the change that's happening, but as I'm listening to a new person I'm working with, or even any person I'm working with or a friend, and I'm hearing, I can, I, I get a glimpse of, whoa, and I had that experience as well. Last week, I was listening to a sponsee's step work, and I could see the growth in myself that I hadn't seen before. And I could, and that gave me such hope because I knew, oh my God, I know exactly how to, I know exactly what to say because I've been through this exact same thing. Um, and that's really why we grow and continue to change so that I can be useful. Of course, it's because I want to feel better, but, but ultimately it's so that I can turn around and help somebody else. Um, then in the, um, in the spiritual experience, they have this beautiful promise. It says, with few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. And... Um, you know, the question is, and we talked about turning phrases in the big book into questions and asking myself, you know, like in the first step, have I passed through the region from which I know no human power, I know no human power can keep me from my latest problem, my alcoholism, my addiction, my whatever, my thinking in this moment about this new thing that has arisen for me, something arose yesterday and it's been trying to pull me into it. Ha do Am I clear that no human being, including myself with my own thinking, can, can bring me to a place of awakening so that I'm back in the sunlight of the spirit, walking hand in hand, trudging the road with purpose, with my fellows being useful and being in the world rather than in my head. And once I know for sure that the humans can't do it, including me, I have to ask myself, have I tapped the unsuspected inner resource? Have I tapped that resource? How do I access that resource? How do I have a living, breathing, moment to moment experience with that which is deep down within me. And that's what the book tells us at another point that that's where we find this inner resource. Okay, Kate, let's go back to you. Thanks, Elizabeth. So can I presently identify this unsuspected inner resource? Can I call that a higher power? Can I start there with a conception? And um, so the book tells us um, this 
quote at the bottom of the spiritual experience. It basically is just letting us know that contempt is going to be a problem for us if we're trying to have an open mind, right? And um, Elizabeth looked up contempt and uh, a couple of the definitions we found included condescension. So am I condescending about faith? Um, or the idea of faith, and then, of course, defiance, right, which we know <laughs> from the 12 and 12 is the outstanding characteristic of the alcoholic. So on page 45, back in the main part of the text, page 45, it says, um, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. Um, a friend of ours says when the book says something like this, like, it's obvious. If it's not obvious to you, you may have missed something. So you need to go back a little way. So is it like by this point in my step one life, right? Like whatever issue I'm obsessing about, I'm mentally spreeing about, um, I've got to find a power by which I can live with this thing. And it has to be a power greater than myself but where and how am I to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. And it, so like, okay, here we are. We're exactly where we're supposed to be of finding a power by which I can live. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people here will relate to this is, well, I found a power almost 14 years ago by which I can live and not drink. But whatever I'm dealing with today, oh, this is different. This is harder. I can't fix this. I need more help. And so the idea of our of our gathering here is, am I in my present life with the sober or sane or well mind that I have at this point in recovery? Am I still believing this promise that I can have an awakening around what my struggle is today in my life today? Because I'm not growing today based on what happened 13 and a half years ago. That was a great foundation. But what I need today is an unsuspected inner resource that meets me today with all of the ideas and knowledge and experience I have as a person in recovery today. So now we're going to go over to page 53. And it says, um, when we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that something greater than me, God, is everything or else he is nothing. Either he is or he isn't. What's our choice to be? And the book says, but arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines and the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. We were grateful reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. So, this is um, when Elizabeth and I started talking about step two, and she asked, okay, what's the biggest thing in step two for you in the book? And I was like, page 54. And so if we turn to page 54, that first full paragraph, um, I said, and this is, this is the truth for me, it took 54 pages and all the Roman numerals before it when I was counting days and going line by line with my sponsor at the time through this book. 
it wasn't until this paragraph on page 54 that AA had me. And after I read this paragraph, I deeply identified for the first time and I was, I was hooked. I was in, I wasn't leaving. It got me. And it's this thing that said, hadn't faith been brought, been involved in our lives all the time. Even, you know, I thought God didn't like me. God was mad at me. I'd slept with the wrong people. I'd done embarrassing things while drunk. I had behaved in ways unbecoming my own values. So the idea of having faith in a God was so plagued by my own ideas and my thinking around how terribly bad and worthless I was. And then it says here, it says, had we not worshiped people, sentiment, things, and money, and then with a better motive, had we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea, or a flower, who of us had not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with reason, little or nothing? Were these things not the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings determine the course of our existence. It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship. In one form or another, we had been living by faith and little else. And so I identified here because I came into the program not thinking like, oh, I have a drinking problem. Absolutely not. I had a problem with it. I couldn't get what I wanted out of the world. I loved people who didn't love me back. Other people had easier lives. They had money or they had parents who did this or boyfriends who did this, or they didn't have these tragedies that had, had been in my life since my childhood that forced me to have to take matters into my own hands and drink the way that I drank. But here, this brilliant part of the book is telling me I'd been using my own mind to navigate life. And even though I had been failing miserably, I had the capacity to believe in something all along. I was just believing in something that wasn't working for me. But the capacity for belief was all I needed to keep going through the steps. And I identified for the first time in this paragraph, this was me, the way I felt in front of a sunset, the way I felt in front of, you know, flowers was that part of me that was God. I just couldn't sustain it with any action or any, there was no ability to sustain that feeling of being one with God. And so um, from there, I had this teeny tiny mustard seed. Beautiful. Thank you, Kate. What came to me, you know, in the, you were talking about the beginning and how it first grabbed you. For me, coming to believe in a power greater than myself began in a very obvious way, but it wasn't obvious to me. In the book on page 55, middle of the page, the second paragraph down, it says, actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. There is a power inside of myself. I never had a problem per se with God. I, I grew up a certain way. No one forced it down my throat. But I just, there was God. There was this idea. There, I, I never had an experience 
of God deep down within me. And I remember early on, and I don't even remember who this was, which sponsor, but she talked to me about having a relationship with God as I would have a relationship with anything else. And if you're going to have a relationship with your child or your spouse, I wasn't married or had kid or anything at the time. I had a relationship with not- well, my dog. I got a dog when I was counting days. So like to have a relationship with your dog, Jack, Elizabeth, uh, you need to walk him, feed him, spend time with him. Um, and so it was proposed to me to have dates or times where I set aside time with God. And I, I don't, I can't, I wish I could remember who told me this, or maybe I heard a speaker, but I took it very literally. And I lived in Manhattan and I lived on the West side and I had a lot of things on the East side, my home group, college work. And so what I would do is I would take the subway up to the um, Central Park, and then I would walk from the West side to the East side. And I would do that every day. And then same thing on the way back. And that was my time with God. And the other thing that I would do is uh, they said, go where you feel, you feel at peace and spend time there. And that's your time with God. And for whatever reason, bookstores and museums in New York, I felt I would go by myself and I would just walk along and look at the books. And it was just like my private time, my building. And now looking back, it's so obvious, which like I said, wasn't obvious then. Like, well, of course, no wonder why my experience and my willingness and this relationship has continued to grow and I continue to want it to grow. And it's the most important thing to me is because I've given it time. And then later on, you know, it's the steps actually specifically say meditation, sitting down, be quiet time. But it started in this very, you know, New York City, where do you go for quiet park, blah, blah, blah. So bottom line is relationship. Um, You know, the other night I was tucking my son in and he said to me, put Buddy on the bed. We have a little poodle. And I said, okay. And I put Buddy on the bed and he tries to snuggle with Buddy. He's like about this big. And Buddy jumps off the bed and he says, why doesn't he love me? And I said, well, Buddy loves you. And he goes, well, why doesn't he want to snuggle with me? And I said, well, you know, he, he always wants to go to you. And I said, well, you know, George, I feed Buddy and I take Buddy for walks and that's my bonding time with Buddy. And, you know, you can have that too. And so, Next thing I know, he goes, excuse me. And he gets up. I go, where are you going? He goes to bond and he gets a treat and he puts Buddy in his place, his little bed and Buddy gets in his place and he gives him a treat. And then he, um, he says, good place, Buddy. And then he just comes back to bed. He didn't expect Buddy to come in the bed immediately and snuggle with him. Like that was always my thing, right? I did one thing and now I'm like, come on, God, where are you? He didn't, he just very naturally was like, I'm going to start this process. And um, I don't know, he's way ahead of me, this kid. All right, Kate, where are we going now? We're almost up. (laughs) I think we're at our meditation question, um, which now I really think should be about dogs, but no, we're going to stay, we're going to stay focused. Um, 
Although one of my favorite speakers says that dog is God backwards, but then again, so is cat. So, um, so we're going to go over to page 47. And we have here a, a step two question. We needed to ask ourselves, but one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? And so, um, Step two has some other questions we've talked about today, like deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Is God everything or is God nothing? But we're going to set a timer for five minutes and do a group meditation together, and then we will go to share. So we will stop the recording and um, have a, oh, Elizabeth, do you want to do the instruction on the question that you did last week? Because you do such a good job with that. Okay, so last week what we did was we contemplated a question. I'd like to invite you to try that again. Um, it's a great opportunity to surrender the mind over and over and over. So asking, do I now believe or am I willing to believe in a power greater than myself? And then pausing. And as soon as you become aware of mind activity, Simply surrender and come back. The way we surrender is by coming back to the focal point, the focus, which is the question, and we refeed it to the mind. Am I now willing to believe there's a power greater than me? And then we come back, we surrender, come back, surrender, come back. So we're not looking for an answer. We're marinating on a question. Have a wonderful meditation.
That's five minutes. We will now go to a show of hands. 